All right, good morning, NBC. So excited to kick off the Fruit of the Spirit series this summer. We are going to go through each aspect of these fruit over the next 10 weeks together. We looked at the Fruit of the Spirit a little bit in our spring series, but here we're going to do a much deeper dive, and uh, we've given you a set of message notes on your way in. Hold up your message notes if you got those. You can bring those back each Sunday during the summer and take notes on each sermon and collect not so much what the preacher is teaching that Sunday, but what God is showing you uh, each Sunday and every time you Come back, just continue to learn and grow in this aspect of our life in the Spirit. I want to invite you as we begin this series to really personalize it for yourself, to really make it your own, to really make it meaningful by asking yourself this question. What is one area in my life where I would like to see the Holy Spirit develop this aspect of the fruit in me? What's one area in your life where you would like to see more progress, more growth? I want you to keep that one area in mind, not just today, but throughout this summer as we go through all the, the different nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. It will be much more meaningful for you. So what is that for you? Uh, don't answer out loud, but just think, what is that for you? I want to see really my aspect of growing in love or growing in joy or, or patience or, or self-control. What is that one area for you where you're asking the Holy Spirit of God uh, to do a work in your heart this summer. With that said, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. That's our text for today. Did you know that Galatians is the first letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote? He went on a missions trip in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Uh, a bunch of churches were planted. It was hugely successful. As he got back to Antioch, he heard word that things at that church were not going so well. And so what he did for the first time ever is he picked up a pen and he wrote down his first ever letter the letter to the Galatians. And we actually have a copy of it. You have a copy of it, I bet you, on your, on your phone or maybe you have a hardback Bible with you. Please turn that uh, Bible to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Galatians was written in the year AD 39. It is all about Christian freedom. It's been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty because it's all about the freedom that we have in Christ, freedom through the gospel. We're no longer bound by the details of the law. We are free and set totally free by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so happy 4th of July weekend. It seems appropriate as we celebrate our nation's birthday to also think about this aspect of freedom in the Christian life. And we're grateful for those who have walked out God's calling in their lives sacrificially to serve our nation today so that we could worship in freedom. But we are also free in Christ. But I want you to notice something. Just because we are set free in Christ, uh, Paul makes a very important statement in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, just because you're set free, you should never, never, never use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And so with that said, that brings us to our passage today, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. You'll see two main sections of this passage. Pretty much everybody breaks it down the same way. You'll, you'll see the, the works of the flesh and then you'll see that contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And you'll notice that there's a war between these two. There's a conflict going on between these two, and we'll look at both uh, today. As an aside, we've set aside today as Family Worship Sunday, and so you'll see some younger students with us today. If you're younger, if you're sixth grade or younger, would you just raise your hand if you're with me today and you are under sixth grade or under? Okay, there's a few of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> I see you there, but I think he's a little older than sixth grade. All right, the first service had a bunch of them. I see you back there. I may need your help, okay? So from time to time, I'm going to throw out a question that's sixth grade and under only. So uh, take a look at those questions. We'll look for those throughout the message, and we will ask you for your assistance. We may even give you a prize, which is 
featured right here on this wonderful table, some fruit. So uh, we're going to have some fun today, involve the kids, and enjoy some family worship. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pause for just a moment. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy in our nation. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. We thank you for your word. We ask, God, that you would open up our eyes, ears, most of all hearts, so that we might understand in a fresh way what you're teaching us here today. These are familiar verses for many of us. And so would you turn the sprinklers on and uh, show us something new, show us something where we need to be stretched and we need to grow in new and exciting ways, because we're all on this journey. We're all growing. And so, Lord, we invite you now to do your work and have your way. We ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. And all God's people said... Amen. The Apostle Paul begins this section with verse 16. Take a look at what he says. He says, so I say, which is a very special introductory formula in the original. That's a, a, a way of saying, I'm going to start a brand new subject. This is my advice about this matter. He's switching gears here. So I say, and then he says this, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. First of all, notice as we pause right there the word walk. The word walk is an image that the Apostle Paul is using to describe living out the Christian life. It's an image that he will use multiple times in this passage. Verse 16 says walk. Verse 18 says be led by the Spirit. 25a says live by the Spirit. 25b says keep in step with the Spirit. Those are all the same image that Paul is using to describe our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, which is a dynamic relationship that involves interactivity between us and the Holy Spirit. Many times in the Apostle Paul's letters, he will say you need to sit sit in your identity in Christ and all that he has given you. Sometimes he'll say to stand, to take your stand right here, stand firm against the enemy. Sometimes the apostle Paul will say fight. You need to fight the good fight of faith. But here in our passage today, Paul says, I want you to walk by the spirit. I want you to live out the life that you have in Christ in deep connected fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So can I ask you this morning, are you walking by the spirit? Are you like Noah, the hero of the book of Genesis, who walks with God? How is your walk with the Holy Spirit today? The next thing I want you to notice in these opening verses is there is a conflict. There is a a battle. There is a civil war. There is a constant tension. It's happening in my heart. It's happening in your heart today between the flesh and the spirit. You'll notice in our passage there are two lists Because in the Bible, there are two ways, there are two roads, there are two trees, there are two modalities, there are two powers, and these two are in conflict with one another. They are opposed to one another, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And here's what our culture today doesn't understand. There are desires on the inside of us that we should not seek to satisfy. There are desires on the inside of us that we should not, the Apostle Paul says, we should not seek to fulfill them. Desires for status, desires for pleasure, or whatever, no matter how much happiness those desires promise to us, Paul says, do not give in to the desires of the flesh. There is a fight, and you must be involved in that fight, the fight between the flesh and the spirit. It's kind of like these two good-looking guys up on the screen right here. Actually, there's more than two guys. How many of you uh, notice these two people on the screen? I say there's three or four different individuals up there. This is an idea that the Apostle Paul is giving us. There's a, there's a wrestling match on the inside of us, right? Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner, let's get ready to rumble! 
right, this is the battle. This is the flesh. This is the spirit. I'm just making sure you're awake today, okay? There's this, there's this constant conflict on the inside of us. Now, when I was a kid, it was like Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, King Kong, Bundy. I barely know who we're talking about up here. So any of my younger friends out there, do you recognize any of these people on the screen? If you do, just, just raise your hand. Can I, can I get some help? My, my older friends know who it is, too. I'm looking for a younger, younger, younger buddy. All right, yeah, come on up here, man. Very good. I can barely see you. All right, yeah, come on up. Give my, give my friend a hand as he comes on up to the stage. Awesome. All the way up here, my friend. I'm going to put you on the spot. You did raise your hand. I don't know if your dad was raising your hand for you there, but uh, do you recognize any of these people up here? What's one person that you recognize? Dwayne. Wait, first of all, what's your name? Cord. Hey, nice to have you today. All right, so what, what's, what's one name that you recognize up there? Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is up there. Awesome job. Pretty good. Do you, do you know any others? No. No. How about, have you ever heard of John Cena? Yeah. Yeah? All right. Awesome. Hey, give my friend a hand again. All right. You can have, wait, before you go, pick out a piece of fruit. Pick out a piece of fruit. You get fruit. We're doing the fruit of the spirit today. Awesome. Very good. Get a good one. And I need a little help here today, so I'm going to keep asking you questions. Don't be shy. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. There's a war. There's a conflict. There's a fight. There's a wrestling match. There's a battle on the inside of me, on the inside of you. And friends, in this battle, there will be no truce. In this battle, there will be no peace negotiation. Uh, Author John Stott says, there is an irreconcilable antagonism between these two. There will be no surrender. This will be a fight to the death. And this battle, furthermore, is universal. As I was studying Timothy George's commentary on Galatians, he was very helpful here as he said this, quote, no Christians are so spiritually strong or so spiritually mature that they need not heed this warning, unquote. That's all of us. It is a universal battle that we have with these desires of the flesh. And so what are they? What are those desires of the flesh? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Take a look. He says, well, the acts of the flesh are obvious. They're they're obvious. In fact, they're so obvious, we probably don't even have to name them on the screen. They're, They're so obvious, you could probably come up with a list of them yourself. The Apostle Paul says they're just apparent. They're visible. We see them, these behaviors. They really need no introduction. The flesh is a very important term for us to realize as we jump into this series. It doesn't mean our skin. It doesn't even refer to the human body. The flesh, most often in Paul's letters, refers to the sinful nature. The flesh refers to that part of us that's selfish and that's self-centered. And that's the way that we're born. We're born that way apart from Christ. We're born in the flesh. And it's not that hard to tell the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Paul gives us some categories to work with. The first category that he leads us to is that the flesh leads to broken intimacy. In the Bible, any kind of intimacy outside of the Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman for life ideal is a broken view of intimacy. One of the intimate sins he lists here, he just calls debauchery. Debauchery is just a big word that means indecency. It means not just a lack of respect for that which is good, but it also means flaunting that which is not good and doing so in a very public fashion. It's this idea of total shamelessness. 
Now, I don't believe any man, woman, or child of God or person in Christ should ever have to live with a sense of toxic shame. God has broken us free from that kind of shame. But can I just say, with all due respect, there, there, there are some aspects of shame that are not really that bad. There are some things that we should be ashamed about. In fact, when God is talking to his people in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, here's what your problem is. Here's what my people's problem is. He says this, they did not know how to blush. My people lost their sense of shame and guilt when they should have shame and guilt for the behaviors that they've exhibited. This is debauchery, intimate sins. The next category of sins that he lists here in the works of the flesh, I'll just call religious sins. And the religious sins he lists here are things like idolatry and things like witchcraft. Now, I'm kind of doubting that there's anybody here today who's a witch or a warlock or delves into those kinds of things. If you do, you need to know the Bible is really clear about not delving into those things. They're enticing and they intrigue people to access a kind of power in your life, but not submit your life to the rule of God. And so that's what's enticing about them. And God says, they're not pleasing in my sight. Man has religious sins. Women have religious sins. Mankind is incurably religious. This is the second category. The third category of the acts of the flesh, we'll just call them relational sins. Relational sins. And here he lists a bunch of them. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Do we see this in our day? Do we see these sins in our day? Of course, just turn on the news every night. Just open up your Facebook app, open up Twitter. You see all kinds of exhibitions of these kinds of relational sins every day. There are fits of rage on the news every night. I turn it on. People are taking sides. There's groups, there's factions, there's cliques, there's polarization. The flesh wreaks havoc on relationships. This could involve deep and embedded hostilities like racism. This could also involve an overall antagonism toward another person individually. So take a look at some of these words, and I'm going to ask the, the, the young students with us today if they could help me out. Do you notice that word jealousy right there on the screen? I wonder if there's any student here who could help me with a definition of jealousy. Would anybody like to try? Yeah? All right, come on up, Miss Chloe. Chloe's going to come up and try this one. Give Chloe a hand as she comes. Awesome. Come on up. Awesome. I already said your name, so it's, it's Chloe, right? How are you doing today, Chloe? Fine. Fine. Okay, good. So if you had to define it, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here today, but if you had to define jealousy, what, how, put that in your own words. What is jealousy? Like envy and wanting something that another person has. Excellent. Very good. Take a piece of fruit. Give my friend Chloe a big hand for helping me out today. <laughs> jealousy is wanting something, something somebody else has. Now, envy is a little different. Envy is not wanting the other person to have it for themselves either. And so that's jealousy and that's envy. And we struggle with that. I mean, as kids, I remember struggling with that. Another student would get a toy or would get something, a bike, and I wanted that. Or maybe it's you today. It's a device, that the, a phone that another student has got or something that was, uh, you know, brand new and you got jealous. Or maybe your brother and sister uh, get something and you're jealous of them. That can happen, right? Or um, parents, how about you? ever experienced jealousy in your own life? Maybe there's that neighbor who pulls up in their new car or they got their new tractor or they got their new vacation spot or new career. Of course, this isn't just kids, right? We, we struggle with this issue of jealousy. It's, it's this self-centeredness. It's, it's the flesh. It, it wreaks havoc on our relationships. There's one more category that he gives us here that we'll just call 
problems of addiction or addictive sins. And he lists a few here. One of them that he lists is, is called drunkenness. But that could really apply to other areas of addiction, narcotics addiction, gambling addiction, anything. This category of the flesh is when you give yourself over to something and you continue to do that something despite the negative consequences. Because you're going to this something for all of your source of joy, all of your sense of satisfaction, all of your sense of happiness. Even if it's destructive, you continue to go back for more and more and more. And it becomes too important in your life, more important than even pleasing God. That's an addiction. Paul says... That's an addictive sin. And then he ends this list with this phrase, and the like. Or your translation might say, and things like these. In the Greek, that's the, their version of saying, etc. Paul is saying, things like these. I could keep going on and on and on today. I could go on all night just explaining the different manifestations of the flesh. I could go on forever. The, sin, the sinful nature has an endless variety of different manifestations. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Commentator Philip Ryken says, quote, the only thing the sinful nature can produce is an unchaste, unholy, uncharitable, and undisciplined life. That's it. That's the works of the flesh. After these four categories, Paul then issues a pretty stern exhortation. He says this, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty serious warning. And so let's just take a moment as we look at this first section and ask ourselves, do I see these works of the flesh in my life? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 7, and he said, by their fruits you will recognize them. Uh, Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so Jesus says, okay, look, look, do you get figs when you look at a thorn bush? No, of course, Jesus. Of course, I wouldn't get figs when I look at a thorn bush. Nobody's going to get a fig from, okay, good, got that. Do Do you get apples when you look at thistles? Do apples grow on thistles? No, Jesus, of course, apples don't grow on thistles. Everybody knows you can't get figs from thorn bushes and you can't get apples from thistles. Anybody who says you can get those kinds of fruit from those kinds of plants is either crazy or they're lying. And so Jesus would say, okay, well, look at your life. Look at how you talk and how you live. Do you look like the world and talk like the world and act in sin and rebellion just like the world? There's a piece of advice found in this Christian mystical book that really caught my attention. It's a phrase that goes back to St. Benedict in the 5th century, and he was talking to a group of his followers, and it was a rather shocking piece of advice to them, and I want to give it to you as well. He said, I'd like for all of you to pause for a moment and take stock of your miserable existence. Words of advice he gave to a group of rather startled followers. But would you be willing to take his advice for a moment just to take stock In other words, when you look at your life, you go, something's off. Something's not working right. Something's robbing me of a life that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And why? Why am I willing to live like at this low level? Now, some people have an objection here. They say, you know, Paul's warning seems exceptionally harsh. 
They won't inherit the kingdom of heaven? Aren't we saved by grace? Aren't we entering into the kingdom by faith alone? How does this verse make any sense? If a Christian commits one of these sins, are you saying that they're not going to be part of the kingdom? And I think the answer to that question is qualified by this phrase that he says, those who live like this. Those who live like this is the the Greek word prosantes, and it's in the present continuous tense. It, It refers to a habitual action. It's someone whose lifestyle is characterized by these behaviors. It's dominated by these behaviors. Paul doesn't mean that if we have an occasional temptation towards one of these acts of the flesh that we're automatically outside of the kingdom. In fact, I would argue the whole point of the passage is that we do have a war going on. There is a conflict in the heart of each man, woman, and child who belongs to God, and we have to recognize that that conflict is there. But the point he's making is that if someone is totally characterized by these, if there is no war within you, if you're not fighting back, then you, you, don't, you don't just have indwelling sin, you have reigning sin, and it is dominating over you. Paul says, if that's the case, the Spirit of God is not living on the inside of you. Galatians 5.24 makes an interesting statement later on in the passage. He says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, here's a pretty advanced question. Uh, for, for those of you students in the room, you could just shout it out if you know. You know the difference in grammar when you have past tense, present tense, future tense? What tense is the verb crucified in? Past. Very good. Thank you very much in the back. I heard you. That, you got an A plus on that exam right there. It is in the past tense, crucified, past tense. When did that happen? We know Jesus was crucified in the past on the cross on Good Friday. But when was my flesh crucified? When was your flesh crucified? Uh, Most commentators would agree, most theologians would agree that the answer to that question is that Paul here is referring to his own personal experience of conversion. When he turned to Christ in faith and applied Jesus' death to his behalf, that's the same decision that we have to make too. Theologian John Stott says, this crucifixion here is both painless and painful, and it's decisive. It's painless, and it's painful, and it's decisive. Can I ask you, have you had a moment like that? Have you had a moment in your life where you have decisively, earnestly, painlessly, yet painfully, pitilessly said, this is not me anymore. This is I don't want to live like this anymore. I turn my back on this old man. I turn my back on this old person. I reject the old Dave. This is not me any longer. That person is dead, buried, gone. That's not who I am. Those desires, those passions were nailed to the cross. And when I turned to God, I rejected those sins. I want nothing to do with them anymore. Have you had a moment like that? See, the first step in bearing fruit is submitting our lives to God with the decision to make him our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we come to a Savior who's got open arms of love and grace and mercy, and the gospel is good news of salvation, that if we just come by faith, he cleanses us from our sins, from all unrighteousness, and makes us part of his own family. That's good news. For those of us who have already made that decision, when we find these kinds of sins in our lives, the solution that we need to turn to is an ancient Christian discipline called confession. Confession. Confession just simply means agreeing with God about my sin. 
and you can confess directly to the Lord, but the Scripture also says we should find another brother or sister in Christ that we trust and confess our sins one to another and pray for each other. Now listen, you don't have to tell everybody all of your business, but there should be somebody in your life who knows everything. There should be somebody in your life who's allowed to ask you really, really hard questions. There should be somebody in your life who you give permission to be rude to you for Jesus' sake so that you can confess one to another. When we do that, some of those sins are pretty ugly, but they need to come out and have the light of Christ shine on them, and we'll experience real victory when we do that. There's an old expression that fishermen use. The deeper you go, the uglier the fish. You ever hear that expression? When you're out there in in the ocean, typically on the top of the water, you see the more pleasant-looking, more enjoyable, more beautiful fish. Fish like these fish on the screen. (laughs) Now, how many of you out there, my young friends, you know the name of at least one of these fish on the screen. Just raise your hand if you could. All right, come on up, my lady. All right, come on down. Give my friend a big hand for helping me out here today. All right. Trivia question. This is an older movie, and you look very young, so I'm surprised that you know the answer to this. So um, do you know the names of either or both of these characters? I know the names of both. All right, first of all, what's your name? Naomi. Naomi. Nice to have you with us today. All right. So you got both, you think? Mm-hmm. All right. Who are they? Um, Dory and... I only know Dory. Dory. <laughs> She's the harder one to know. All right. Help her out. Who's the other one? Nemo. Now do you remember? Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Very good. What? Oh, is that Marlon? Did I get the wrong picture? Oh, yeah. That's Marlon. Yeah, that's oh. Marlon. Sorry. Th- How can you tell? We got fish expert out there. All right. So I was wrong too. So don't worry. Hey, get a piece of fruit. Awesome. Very good. You can have a seat. Give my friend a big hand for helping me out. All right, and I'll take this fruit and throw it at my friend over there. So, <laughs> no, good job. Thanks for that correction. Anybody know what kind of fish Nemo and Marlin are? What kind of fish is that? Clownfish. Very good. You knew, right? Okay. Do you know what kind the uh, Dory is? Do you know what kind of fish she is? Anybody know? Anybody? Starts with blue. Blue tang. Blue tang fish, so there you go. So Now, those fish are pretty. Those fish are on the top of the water, but as we're talking about sin, remember we said the deeper you go, the uglier the fish. How many of you remember this guy from the same movie? Remember him? <laughs> Way down at the bottom. This is called an angler fish, and sometimes when we go deep down, we find some ugly creatures down there. Here's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. When it comes to the sins of the flesh, we got some ugly fish deep down in our hearts, and we need to bring them to God in confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. So as we think about the acts of the flesh, we need to think about the discipline of confession, which leads us to movement two. As we think about the other side of the coin, the other side of the battle, here's a question before we even begin. Where does the Christian acquire the resources to live a victorious Christian life. See, the world tells us that the resources that we need are from the educational system or from trainings that we can go to or seminars. Uh, We can learn how to have a more winsome personality or, or develop our own innate skills or abilities or from advanced theological education 
Or some people say it's from psychotherapy. I don't want to take away from any of those resources, but I just want you to notice here that the Apostle Paul says the value of those other things cannot even compare to his primary answer in terms of resources that you've been given to live the victorious Christian life. And the number one primary resource you have is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of each Christian. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, my contention is the Holy Spirit is like the lesser-known member of the Trinity. You ever go, uh, you ever watch the news and they have that man-on-the-street type of thing and they're asking people, like, who the representatives in our government are? And they're like, who's the president? I don't know. So most people can figure out, like, Joe Biden is the president. Then you start getting down. You're like, who's the vice president? like, Kamala Harris? All right, awesome. This, this, this is a smart person. You get to, like, the Speaker of the House, people are like, I don't know, Speaker of the House, I don't know. It's Nancy Pelosi, right? Things, things like is, we get deeper into the state legislature, state government, people don't know. I think that's kind of the way it is with the Holy Spirit. God the Father, got it. I'm on it. I, I understand. God the Son, Christmas, Easter, I understand God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, I'm a little less clear about that. I'm a little fuzzier about that one. And so in this summer series, we're going to be correcting that imbalance or that underemphasis with a theology of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And one of the things he does is produce his fruit in your life. Now, one of the things I want you to notice about that word is it's very important and strategically placed here. In other words, when God decided to choose any word that would describe the results of him being at work in your life, he did not choose the works of the Spirit or the deeds of the Spirit. He did not say the acts of the Spirit. He said the fruit of the Spirit. This is an image used frequently throughout the New Testament, John chapter 15. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Colossians chapter 1, so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work. Now, why does the Bible choose to use this language of fruit? And there's a few reasons. First of all, fruitfulness speaks about productivity. If you look at a, cru a fruitful crop or a, a bumper crop with an abundance of produce, that's a picture of what God wants to do inside of your heart, inside of our lives. He wants us to be productive and fruitful, and he wants our lives to be abundantly productive. In New Jersey, we have this saying, the corn's got to be knee-high by the 4th of July. We want a harvest of corn here in New Jersey. We want God to produce a harvest of good fruit in our lives, and that fruit should be growing. Here in the summer, uh, we have a lot of wonderful opportunities for a harvest at NBC. This year, we're, we're, we're focusing in on some spiritual formation things. In the spring, we did the, the detoxicity series and got the toxins out of our system. And now this summer, we are asking the Lord for a harvest here at NBC. We've got over 100 kids coming in for our summer adventure program. We're sending our youth group out on mission to Kentucky to serve those. We have lots of opportunity to serve him here at home this summer, and we're asking the Lord for a harvest of good fruit, to bear his fruit in us for his glory. Would you like to be part of that? Fruit is about productivity. Secondly, uh, fruit is highly visible. Right? There is no such thing as invisible Fruit. God wants us not just to know ourselves to be Christians, but to show ourselves to be Christians. It's not just head knowledge. A right relationship with the Holy Spirit ought to make a visible difference in my life 
Fruit is highly visible. Third, fruit is natural and organic. This is very important for you to understand this. This is a little bit of review for some of us, but if you want to change, you have to actually understand the nature of Christian change because it's different from this world's idea of change. The world typically thinks of change in terms of hard work. Nothing wrong with hard work, but that's not the kind of change that you typically see in a garden, right? You don't walk into a garden and see the tree going, fruit, right? That doesn't make any sense. You don't go to a vineyard and see the vines struggling like, struggle. No, the kind of change that you see in a vineyard or in a garden is more natural. It's more organic. There is no struggle involved. It just sort of happens automatically because of the nature of this particular piece of agriculture. That's botanical growth. That's the kind of change the Holy Spirit makes in you. It's not like fruit. It's more like fruit. Boop, 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 boop. This is what God is doing in me. It's natural. I understand the gospel, and this fruit is just naturally coming out because I know him, and he knows me, and I'm abiding in him, and he is making me more like Jesus Christ, and it's just coming out naturally. This is who I am. It's natural. It's organic. Now, it's the Holy Spirit's job to produce this fruit in you, but you play a role as well. The dual nature of that is a little bit of a mystery, but I like the way Andy Stanley says it. He says this, fruit is produced in and through, not by us. Fruit is produced in and through, not by us. We see this mysterious duality from time to time in the New Testament. Like Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? He's at work to will and to do according to his good pleasure, We see this mysterious, synergistic work that's happening, producing the fruit of the Spirit as we not so much work really hard, but as we surrender to God and his will for our lives. The picture of surrender is falling backwards into a pool of water, surrendering to God and all that he wants to do in and through you. So let's take a look at these nine aspects of fruitfulness that Paul addresses in verse 22. And this is a verse I'd like you to commit to memory. So in light of that, we're going to say it out loud. Ready? But the fruit of the Spirit, twice as loud, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Very good. Here we have nine aspects of what it looks like to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And we have everything we need in the Holy Spirit to bear this fruit. Love, that's the word agape. It's used over 70 times in the New Testament. Joy, this is different from happiness. This is joy apart from our circumstances. Peace, not just during the good times, but peace during troubled times as well. Forbearance or patience. We become slow to anger, just like God is slow to anger with us. Kindness, we have a a sweetness about us that can be approachable and accepting. Goodness, that word means integrity, that our words, our, our, our lives are holistic and integrated. Faithfulness means loyalty and courage. Gentleness, you know what gentleness is? Gentleness is when you loan your strength to someone else. Gentleness is strength under control. And then he says, self-control. Self-control is when I know that I have everything that I need in Jesus Christ So I don't need that empty source of satisfaction and pleasure anymore. I can control myself because I already have that which is most fulfilling and most satisfying. So I can have self-control. Here's the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. They are all tied directly back to your faith in the gospel. 
The gospel will produce, if you believe the gospel, it will produce these nine aspects of the fruit in your life. So please don't misunderstand. Please don't look up at the screen and think of this as like a to-do list from God. Like, okay, God, I'm gonna have love. Love, yes, I'm gonna be more loving. I'm gonna be more joyous. I'm gonna have more peace. Yes, I got my orders. Thank you, sir. I will get on it. That is not what this is. This is not a to-do list from a commanding officer. Rather, this is a natural, organic process that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you. And it's gradual. Christian growth is gradual. It's as gradual as a piece of fruit growing. You don't notice every time a strawberry gets a centimeter larger. You don't notice all the time when fruit is... It's as gradual as a tomato growing or a cucumber growing. Growth is sometimes really, really so small, you can't even see its, its growth, but it's happening. It's like when we used to measure our kids' height on the wall. You know, once a year, get up on the wall, let's see if you grew a little bit. Sure enough, a couple more inches. I didn't really notice because I was watching them all year. That kind of growth is just gradual. It happens, but it is powerful. It's somewhat mysterious, but it's slow and gradual. The next thing I want you to get in this morning is that Christian growth is comprehensive. This is the most important thing I want to try to communicate to you today. So don't miss this part. If you're sleeping, wake up. I want you to notice that Paul uses the word fruit, singular, and then strangely, he gives us a list of nine different things. Did you notice that? If you like grammar, if you like English class, even if you're in like fourth, third, second grade here, you would see that and go, that's not proper. You can't have a singular subject and a plural predicate. Paul would say, I beg to differ. I beg to differ because this is one fruit with nine different aspects. It is not a multitude of nine different types of fruit. It is one fruit And incredibly, in a profound way, these characteristics come together as one. Now, it's not not at all like the deeds of the flesh. The acts of the flesh, you can choose any of those. It's like a la carte menu. You can indulge in any of those. You cannot, in the same way, choose which aspect of the fruit of the Spirit you want to bear. You can't say, well, today I'm going to have joy. And then next week, maybe I'll try to love somebody. Well, you're not thinking in terms of what Paul is trying to communicate here. The fruit are one. I like the way Philip Ryken says it in his Galatians commentary. He says, quote, these virtues are not nine different gems, but nine different facets of the same dazzling jewel. All the fruit go together. I mean, is it possible to have a lot of love but lack patience? I mean, love is patient. Jonathan Edwards who I've been reading in preparation for this series, has an interesting way of talking about this with a really, really big word. So I'm going to teach you a big word today, and you can try to use it at lunch. That's my challenge for you. Edward says this, there is a concatenation of the graces of Christianity. Concatenation is just a big word that means balanced. It means holistic. It means symmetrical. Uh, John Stott says it this way, quote, God doesn't produce lopsided Christians, unquote. We're concatenated, meaning if you want to know if you have the real fruit of the Spirit of God in your life, not some fake thing, not some counterfeit, not some artificial thing, not something the world can produce, not something you can produce on your own, then you have to make sure that the fruit is concatenated. You have to make sure that it goes together. Now, if you don't have fruit that's, not, that's comprehensive, there's a good chance that you're not manifesting fruit. You're manifesting something that's counterfeit. So turn in your message notes to the back page. On the back page, there is a chart that looks like this chart on the screen, and each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit will have a definition there, and it will have an opposite, and then it will also have a counterfeit. So as you're taking a look at that, 
I want you to just think about those three categories as I give you some examples. Now, I'm indebted to Timothy Keller for his insight on this point about counterfeits. And let me give you some examples that he provides in his book on Galatians for you. He says, some people seem like they have peace. They're unshakable. But it's actually a false peace. And you know it's a false peace because they're not at the same time kind. And the reason they have their peace is because they actually don't care. They're like the Marlboro Man. Nothing can shake them. But it's not God's peace. God's peace comes as I have a childlike faith and I say to God, I trust you. Even if I don't understand, I'm small, you're big, and I really believe that I'm in your hands and I'm asking you for your peace. That's God's peace. If I humbly bow before God and say, I trust you, not me, he will give me that peace that passes understanding. That's the fruit of peace. Another example. Keller says, some people are very gentle, but it's a counterfeit or it's a false gentleness. And the reason you know that is because that person's not also at the same time concatenated with faithfulness. So some people are just gentle because they're temperamentally gentle. They're temperamentally sweet. You know who you are. We love you. You're like the sweetest people in the world. The Lord just made you sweet, and we love being around you. That's your chemistry. That's your physiology. That's your temperament. You're just sweet. But have you noticed that there are non-Christians that can display sweetness as well? That's not the same thing as the gentleness that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Gentleness is like a horse that's been bridled. It is strength under control, and it's combined with faithfulness. A person who's temperamentally sweet will never be faithful, and they will never have the courage to say something difficult to someone else because their sweetness is really a self-protective mechanism. It's not actually the fruit of the Spirit that is gentleness. And so if you're just temperamentally sweet, that's great. That's the way the Lord made you, but you have to push forward here to really exhibit gentleness, which is the fruit of the Spirit. It's holistic. One more example. Some people appear to be extremely kind, and they're just so accepting, and they're just so non-judgmental, and they're so easy to be around, but the only reason they're so kind and accepting is because in their own life, they actually have no self-control themselves. And so their kindness is their way of dealing with their own guilt. They're always lapsing themselves. They're always falling down. They're always breaking their own promises. And the reason they're so kind and accepting is not because it's coming from the fruit of the Spirit. It's their way of dealing with their own guilty conscience. If they were truly kind, as the fruit of the Spirit brings kindness, it would also be accompanied by self-control. It would be concatenated together because these fruit all come together as one. Do you see how these fruit all go together? Do you see how they are holistic? Do you see how they're integrated? Do you see how this is distinctively Christian in its model of change? And so as we begin this series, let me just ask you a question. Do you see the real fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you see God really developing this fruit in you? What areas do you see God the Holy Spirit needs to be growing you Ask a friend if you're courageous. Ask a spouse. Ask someone who knows you and loves you. Do you see this fruit in my life? That's a great way to start today and start this series. Now, one more observation. Fruit is, by definition, others-centered. Fruit begins with the love issue because love is the fountain from which all of the rest of the fruit flows. Fruit never exists for itself. An apple tree doesn't live on its own apples. The apples are to give away. The apples are for others. The apples are acts of love to share with others. 
And so the fruit of the Spirit is not a self-centered way of living. It is always an other-centered, love-one-another way of living. It is others-centered. This is the way we want to be characterized as a church. In fact, our vision here at NBC can be articulated this, this way. We want to make disciples of Jesus who are firmly planted, growing together, and made to multiply. That's what we, we want to be. We want to be a church that's firmly planted, growing together, and made to multiply, asking God to bring a harvest in our midst. Can you imagine a church that's like that? Imagine a church full of fruit-bearing brothers and sisters in Christ, made to multiply. That's who we want to be. Let's be that church. I want to invite the worship team to come forward to lead us in one more song. And as they do, I want to answer one more question. Where do we start? How do we begin this process? As we begin this series, as we begin this summer, where do we begin? Well, I want to point you all the way back to verse 17. Paul says this, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. And I just want you to notice that word, desires. That's the word epithumia. It means to earnestly desire, to, to almost lust after something. The spirit has desires. The flesh has desires. And notice, the flesh is actually opposed to what the spirit desires. And we know from here and from so many other passages that the spirit has a certain desire too. And what the spirit desires is the person of Jesus Christ. The Spirit loves the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit says, I want you to yearn for him. I want you to look at him and see his beauty and his loveliness. And the whole reason why you do those acts of the flesh is because you don't see how beautiful serving the Lord Jesus is. And so the Spirit wants to see Jesus in you. He wants to conform you to the image of Christ. And so the, the concluding exhortation as we start the series is this. Desire those things that the Spirit desires in you. What the Spirit desires in you is Jesus Christ. And so you have to focus on him. You have to meditate on him. And you have to adore him until you find that your heart is set upon him and he's more beautiful and lovely than anything your flesh desires. Desire that which the Spirit desires in you. That's how this fruit begins to grow. That's our challenge. Desire those things that the Spirit desires in you. We're just getting started. We'll delve deeper into this throughout our whole series. But please come and be challenged to grow in our knowledge and in our fruit of the Spirit as we serve the Lord. Let's pray together as we prepare for the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we ask, God, that you do a special and sacred work of sanctification powerfully in our hearts. We want to know you, and we want to be more like you. We know that when we think about this fruit of the Spirit, what we're really thinking about is a character sketch of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be like him. And so, Lord, as we pursue him and as we know him and as we focus on him, Lord, would you conform us into his very image? Father, send your spirit to be at work in a powerful and mighty way. It's in Christ's name and for his reputation we pray. Amen.